Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm TV's Nick Underwood. And on today's show, Nick asks, in many more words, do you understand the words coming out of my mouth? Are all arguments semantic misunderstandings, or do we have a failure to communicate? Do you know the definition of semantics? Luckily, that definition is Nick's opening move as we discuss the communication breakdown brought on by the interconnected nature of the world. Then, I deep dive into all the great and violent things brought into this world by the unlikely marriage of Marvel and the gritty production methods of Netflix. Of all the properties created by Netflix and Marvel, only one follows a broken man with nothing to lose and a whole lot of murder and mayhem to be gained. A character expertly played by the one and only John Bernthal. I'm sure you've all guessed it from the show title, It's the Punisher. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Nick. Josh. How are you? Oh, I'm just okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard before we logged on. Uh, it's good to see you, man. Glad you're uh, on the show again with me and uh, ready to talk about some content, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, I heard that's what we do here. Um, I'm happy to fill in. I know Brett's still got some things going on these days, but uh, yeah, it's fun. Um, yeah, so happy to be back. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, man. I just got over being sick last week. Uh, mm. Kind of like ran through our whole household, some sort of weird stomach bug, but uh, mm. fully recovered now. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, being sick, I watched, read, and played a lot of content. So I was doing my job as a contentologist mm. even when I was not feeling a hundo. That's but dedication. that's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, anytime I had a sick day from school or work, I was like, oh, man. This is video game time. No, that's true. It's hundred percent true. Yeah. So what's new with you? Anything uh, I don't cool know. going on? I see. I don't. We're probably in a different state or something since last time we talked. But we're in Florida now uh, on the Panhandle. I actually, um, this is an area I used to. So I grew up in Atlanta, and I used to come down to uh, Panama City Beach, uh, Florida. They called it the Redneck Riviera. Uh, growing up, like all the time, we came twice a year. I haven't been down here in a long time, and then we're a little up the coast from there in an area I guess I never really had come down to too much, or um, maybe we just, I don't know, maybe it was always like this, but it's a really bougie kind of coastal area on the kind of western side of Florida um, that I didn't know was here. Um, really nice communities, really fancy kind of architecture, uh, way overpriced. Um, there's this one little town we were walking through called Seaside, and uh, it's, you know, it's just it looks almost fake, and uh, the people seem like they were like NPCs just walking around. I was like, "Wow, this is really Ugh, creepy." This, this really feels like the Truman Show or something. And uh, so, it I feel like you're walking around like a, an amusement park. It was, it was, it was. Yeah, I mean, there was some of that, but uh, so it's actually where they filmed Truman Show. So, uh, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense. I learned that afterwards. I'm sure Heather, who's in the background, has heard me say this like to 90 people now. Just loves the story, but. Uh, Cause I basically say it the same way every time, but yeah, it was like, it was first the people seemed off and then I was like, Oh yeah, these are, these houses are all identical and it's like this perfect community and everything's manicured perfectly. And I mean, that's how it really was. That, I think that's what made the people just seem fake. It's almost like they were just soulless little automatons walking around. It was strange, but they had really nice food. They had, they had an Airstream food that's court. That's so weird. Yeah. Do you think that they chose this location for Truman Show before because it looked this way? Like they wanted this surreal-looking location? Or did it seem like part of it might have been built up as a set for the movie? You know, I could go either way on that because I didn't really look up the history of it. I bet it was there before because this is a planned community. They have stuff all over the community talking about little signs saying how uh, you know it was this big kind of new idea to build it this way, everything kind of laid out the way it is and a lot of communities since have kind of tried to replicate it in various forms so yeah no i, I guess with all that it's, it's probably actually truman's show found it or the you know the producers i'm like oh yeah this is exactly what we need that'd be my guess that's pretty awesome I and mean, that reminds me of when i was researching the uh walking dead episode i might have mentioned this in some uh some shows after i covered 
The Walking Dead, but I was looking into like the sets because I was just kind of fascinated by you know like their prison set and all these you know their uh, the different cities that they yeah. film in and uh, the city of Alexandria where a big part of the show takes place. It was a city that was basically built specifically for or a neighborhood that was built specifically for the show, and they uh, you know. Uh, cast members and crew members live there so they can basically do anything they want to this one little i don't know like six or eight square block area yeah this neighborhood because it's a, it's walled in to to stand in for alexandria you know because they yep. have these big giant walls and they can burn the houses down they can build like they can build windmills in the city and they can stage like these big giant horde attacks because it's essentially a it's a film set TV show set right in the middle of the neighborhood. And when I'm watching the show, I'll anytime there's like a, a an overhead view of Alexandria or something, I'd like to pause it and then look in the background and just imagine, you know, there's like, Oh, you can see there is a post office here or there's like some mm-hmm. sort of industrial district. And you know, that just right outside the walls, there are people going about normal lives, but you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the show to me is so immersive that, it's uh, it's really cool to to see how the show is put together, and then imagine like all the goings on outside of the uh, the dramatic lives of the characters on the show. Right. Yep. Pretty neat stuff. It's the kind of stuff that I never noticed before. I was officially a contentologist, so this is a uh, it's both a curse and a blessing. Right. So, uh, what do you got for off top today? Uh, so I thought, you know, maybe I would go a bit lighter, a little less heady than my previous off top attempts. Uh, then I thought, you know, how many really chances, how many chances would I really have to fumble around on a topic I'm not really qualified to talk about, um, out loud and publicly in front of a willing set of, uh, listeners. So, uh, keeping... anytime you get invited to the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So keep it on brand. Uh, today I want to pose a theory or maybe more precisely a hypothesis uh, that's been rattling around in my brain mates for a little bit and see what your thoughts are on the matter. Um, First, I want to start by reading a particular definition for the word semantics because uh, it's going to be important to be uh, precise as we'll get over the next few minutes. So semantics, the meanings of words and phrases in particular context. And, uh, and real, uh, real quick, um, what I'm going to talk about, if I were to ever do a spinoff podcast um, from my time spent here filling in for the great and powerful Brett Chisholm, uh, it would be about this topic, and I actually already have a name for the podcast. It would be called uh, Arguing Semantics. What are we really talking about with Flip Six Three Hole and Keanu Reeves? <laughs> Ooh, you're really going big on your co-host selection. Yeah, I mean, they say dream, dream big. Um don't know if I could get him to sign on board, but hey, it'd be cool. So, so what I'm so what I'm what I'm getting into here is is not exactly a revolutionary hypothesis. It's probably pretty obvious to some, uh, but simply put, uh, it's that I think a decent portion of the trouble and, and conflict we have in our modern society uh, stems from the fact that we humans are often not on the same page as to what we're even talking or arguing about, uh, semantically speaking. Uh, you know, we're not, Man, even, is that ever true? We're not arguing about the same things. And I think there's a lot of different reasons why this can happen. Uh, a lot of different ways and contexts, contexts in which it can manifest. I don't think it's new, uh, but I do think it's getting worse over time. And, and what really bothers me or concerns me about it is how little, um, we seem to be aware of it or acknowledge it at like a societal level and how little we do to kind of combat this. And, it, and really in some cases how it's actually, intentionally abused, um, like we get on some of the more mainstream news channels. Um, so I have some further hypotheses, hypotheses on, I'm not a wordologist, on why it's getting worse. <laughs> a semantisologist. <laughs> yeah, meanings. Uh, on why it's getting worse and why it actually may even be just inevitable and uh, just unavoidable, un- unavoidable as our you know cultures and society um, grows and ever evolves and this kind of explosion of information and, and, uh, well, and numbers of people. Uh, I think a lot of it probably just boils down to the fact that pre- precise communication is, uh, is hard. 
uh, and it's only getting harder. Like I said, as our society gets more complex, and as our you know our, our knowledge about the universe increases, you know there's there's only a finite a finite a finite number of words that you know there's you know an infinite way to combine them, and each each arrangement has its own meaning. Um, I think things like gaps in education levels can make things worse. Uh, you know, if, if what's being talked about is technical, I think, uh, for instance, a lot of the arguments around vaccines can, can come from varying levels of education about just simple biology or uh, immunology, which is an incredibly complex subject. Um, and either way, though, no matter how educated you are, it's, you know, it's impossible to know even just a little about everything that's out there and, you know, all the types of experiences people have that you've never been exposed to. Um and I think when emotions get involved, uh, it becomes even doubly hard to make clear points and to really listen to what the opposing side is saying. And I think this is the kind of misunderstanding and kind of semantic uh, mismatch you have um, in, in the kind of arguments you have in close relationships, uh, like, you know, fighting with a significant other or something like that. I think that's that kind of thing. But I think the, um, the, one, the one thing, so, so everything we've talked about so far, you know, is more or less always been around, I think, probably since the first humans, uh, homo sapiens back in caves, just misinterpreting the, the tone of the grunt, uh, things yeah. like that. <laughs> um, but there, there's one thing I think that's actually newer, and a newer aspect of this, and it's getting worse faster, and that's our ever-decreasing attention spans and uh, increasing movement towards rapid-fire conversations and content. Uh, you know, so think Twitter and its 240 character limit, or uh, the comment-based dialogue you have on Facebook or Instagram, or whatever the new one the kids are doing these days. Um, TikToking, TikToking, and think the you know the incessant sound bites you hear repeated over and over on the news, um, or uh, headlines, clickbait headlines, same kind of idea. Yeah, exactly. This it's is like a, a way a lot of our news is filtered to us these days. Is just you know, reading the least amount possible and getting the just the just the headline, something that like supports the narrative that you already buy into. Exactly. And so with these little tidbits, these little just quick bites, uh, quibby, if you will, uh, they you don't get you don't really get the information. You don't there's just not enough there to get the nuance of what's really trying to be discussed. Um, so, yeah, also talk think about uh the uh, the short slogans and things we throw around all the time now, um, but, you know, there's no way a few words can capture uh, the, the the intentions of what you're trying to say or trying to get across. I think the perfect example. I don't want to dive too deep into this because we're not politicalologists. I don't know. Uh, we're Thank God. Yeah, but the, I think the slogan uh, "Black Lives Matter." Um, I think most of the arguing and conflict around that kind of completely missed the point of what the original. Uh, you know, the original thing they were trying to say was, or the original idea behind the, those three words, which I think was probably more like uh, you know, something like black lives also matter, but something, you know, I would expect any non-racist to agree with, but those three words are so easily spun by the internet and by um, the news distortion fields. And I think that even many people are probably not actually really racist started interpreting it or reacting if it meant something more like black lives matter more or just cop lives don't matter or whatever the crap it devolved into. But the three words fit nicely into a hashtag, but you know, topics like these need books or at least an essay, which I'm sure there are plenty of out there, but nobody's going to spend the time to read that stuff when we have this sort of rapid fire in your face all the time, quick slogany, quick baby stuff. And I think like with black lives matter, it's like a, as a slogan and as the generalized meaning of it, you would be insane to argue against that. Right. You know, it's like if you argue against that, those three words yeah. and the base meaning of them, I mean, it's, it's clearly coming from a racist point of view and almost certainly it is immediately discounted. But I think the problem with that and any political movement is that every one of these movements gets so bastardized by minutia and there's so many, there's so many like underlying, uh, I guess it's, it's hard. It's hard to say what, what it is. It's like, uh, they get, they just get off the rails and they get a bunch of 
false meanings and avenues they start traveling down that don't really have anything to do with the the initial uh, vision or objective. And that's for like almost every single political movement until the, the point where you're, you're not even sure what you're supporting when you're wearing a slogan like that on your shirt anymore. Right, exactly. And that kind of um, gets to the point I was – I have sort of a simple heuristic that, that can kind of also often work for these kind of things. Not, it's not foolproof, but – the way I kind of look at it is if someone felt strongly enough about a topic to like create a slogan or put a slogan on a flag or a sign about it, um, there's probably no way there was enough room on that slogan, on that flag, on that sign for them to actually convey the full point they were trying to get across. <laughs> Unless it's You'd have a, so many p- parentheticals and right. so many sub paragraphs describing what you really mean and making sure nobody spins your words into a direction you don't want them to go. Yeah. So... Um, and like you were saying before, unless they're just blatantly racist, you know, the message is loud and clear. Just don't talk to me. I'm an idiot. But this, this, it's just, uh, I just don't, I don't know what the solution is to this because everybody wants to be able to get their message across and you have, uh, you know, such minimum attention you can get from anybody. It's just blast out the shortest thing you can get out there as fast as you can. And, um, like we're saying, it's just, uh, it goes, it takes its own path and evolves into, uh, whatever these things evolve into it's uh it's uh i think it's something that we i just don't i don't see how we get past this um is the, is the way things are moving and uh except to just educate ourselves and think about it more um to be more aware of it somehow i don't know that's uh this this devolved a little bit from what the points i were i was thinking i would try to get to but you know words are hard and and meanings are hard and Conveying points are hard. Well, I'm sure we can still get to whatever the point is that you wanted to get across, but I, you know, I, I think that a lot of the problem with communication in this era is the internet, and you know, there were all these, all these rose-tinted glasses views of what the internet was going to be, and it was going to bring everyone together, and having access to all the information available to humanity at your fingertip was going to revolutionize the human brain, but it definitely has done the exact opposite of that. And things like social media have been a huge contributing factor to the internet devolving into this basically attention grabbing argument filter, essentially, you know, it's, it just, the internet pulls everyone in and it seems to filter to the top, the people that want to distill everything to sound bites and want to argue about those sound bites. And that's really unfortunate because it really could, and it really is this force of great power on the earth. I've heard the internet and internet access being almost described as a a basic human right, because it's Mm -hmm. so essential to everyday life. You know, everything that we do is connected through it, but it really is a shame that the voices that really get, you know, the most play on the internet and, the people that seem to rise to the top are the people that want to fight over the most basic minutia and bullshit that you can glean out of what other people are saying, you know, it, and a lot, so much of it is like intentionally taken out of context. And, uh, I've got kind of a, I got kind of a personal motto, which is never take a quote out of context. And Nick, don't quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that, 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 it's pretty much a, a much cleaner way of trying to summarize what I was trying to get to with my heuristic is, um, yeah, you, with the, the few words, you're not going to get the context. So if you really care about the topic at hand, you know, spend some time, do a little research, maybe ask some questions if you have somebody you can ask to maybe clarify what they're actually talking about before you, uh, you know, let your preconceived biases and, um, you know, your tribal kind of thought patterns take over for you. It's unfortunate that you could do all the research in the world and put together like a a huge, well-researched salient point. And most likely the people that are going to argue with you about that point would never even glance at all the hard work you had done. Yeah, no, exactly. It's just not how, uh, it's not how we roll now. I was trying to think if, uh, if, if in the past, you know, way back in the day before any sort of this, technological revolution was was there any kind of analog to this was it similar i would think um probably not probably a lot of it has to do with the fact that how easy it is to communicate with anybody now 
you're you know, everyone has a voice, yeah. which is good and bad. Yeah, back then, I mean, communication was pretty, I guess, confined to your your geographic region, like the small geographic region. Probably, uh, you know, you'd have a few books coming through here and there, and some pamphlets and stuff as things the printing press came around. But um, yeah, it's just that I think it's uh, the kind of things we're dealing with now is just not something that they had back then. And, so we don't have a lot of experience with it, and we're uh, it's coming at us too fast for us to really ad- adapt quickly enough to this kind of change. So we'll see where it takes us. Maybe it'll take us to some content. Well, quite possibly. You know, this just when you were talking about semantics, it, the immediate thought I had was um, I was going to ask you: Do you use Kindle when you read, or are you more of like a paperback book kind of guy? Uh, I used to prefer a solid book. I, then I moved on to, I probably have now listened to two or 300 audiobooks, um, just, just so I could multitask doing that stuff. I've gone back to trying to read because I found after a while I had trouble actually reading, like just focusing long enough to sit there, you know, speaking of attention spans and stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to do that. And so I picked up a Kindle recently and I do, I do like it a lot. Um, it's just way more convenient. So one of my favorite features on the Kindle is you can highlight any word and get the dictionary entry on it. And man, it is crazy how much my vocabulary has increased just using Kindle. Because I remember, you know, I've been, when I was younger, I would buy pants specifically for the book pocket, you know, I'd like only buy cargo pants, only if I could haul the book around with me because I was always reading. And then when I got smartphone and I was able to start using Kindle, I was such a immediate adopter of that technology because now I can have hundreds of books in my pocket at all times. But I love being able to highlight a word and get the dictionary entry and basically learn, you know, several definitions for almost every single word and you get to see those words in context Mm. and i you know i always felt like reading just books before i felt like i had a good vocabulary but a lot of the words that i would use i'd seen them and i'd read them but i didn't know exactly what they meant i just kind of knew where they would fit contextually yeah but it's amazing like what technology like that does for semantic understanding personally for people that you know go that deep whenever they're reading and I imagine a lot of people that use Kindle do that as well, because if you're reading, you're probably interested in vocabulary and word usage and things like that. And, and the meaning of what you're reading. Yeah, I, I didn't know that was a feature. Uh, so I, oh, I, man. I it's the best feature. I mean, you can do that like on a smartphone, on anything, sure, yeah. you, anything you find on the internet. But just having that when you're reading, uh, you just get so much more context out of you know what the author is trying to say. And I mean, just as a... As a beautiful side note, your vocabulary increases as well, which I think is a really powerful thing, especially like what you're talking about in a world that's almost completely devoid of context when it comes to the internet. It's good to be able to piece things apart and figure out exactly what people are saying, even if they're not sure about what they're saying. Yeah, which is is me probably 95% of the time. And I, I say that half joking, like everything I write, I mean, it takes me, I don't know, every sentence probably has five versions before I feel like it's even close to what I'm trying to convey. That's just because you're too smart. I don't know if you've listened to any of your episodes from this show, but <laughs> man, it's hard to keep up sometimes. You're you're almost too smart for a bunch of the the other idiots that join you on this show sometimes. Hmm. I might re- rephrase that and say that I may be too dumb to talk about the things I'm trying to be smart about. But hey, I'll take it. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> it's all about perspective. Yeah. So is your uh, is your take? Do you think that they're uh, you think this is a problem that's going to work itself out, or do you think that humanity is going to just keep devolving into pointless semantic arguments and uh, soundbite flinging? Uh, that's a good question. I uh, I think there's so many potential existential crises, crises, crisis high ahead of us um, that maybe this won't matter in the long run. But say we say all that's good and we figure everything else out. And this is like our our last thing we're trying to work on. I would bet that eventually we would evolve to get there some way or another. Because um, I just uh, I just don't think this is sustainable, um, especially if it gets worse. Um, or we do end up in 
I mean, this is part of the what gets us to you know idiocracy. The movie, um, indeed, very uh, very astute movie. By the way, I remember yeah. watching that when I was a kid and just thinking like, this is such a ludicrous concept, but I love it. And uh, man, it does seem like every day just sliding closer and closer to an idiocracy style world, which yeah. uh, won't be quite as funny when we're all living inside of it. No, no, I don't think so. Well, man, I do love thinking about this kind of thing, and it doesn't surprise me that you uh, <laughs> you gave me something heady to think about today. So thank you for that, buddy. Um, it's very interesting. And um, what about your content circuit? Anything, anything new? Just uh, just hanging out out there in Florida, not reading, or uh, what are you doing these days? No, I've actually so um, it'd been a while. I think I. Had a- pretty long hiatus of content where we're getting used to the airstream and traveling all over the place and oh, break, it's blasphemy breaking it. I know. Um, but now it's, I've started to have free time again and, uh, yeah. So I caught up on the last, uh, the latest season of Rick and Morty, um, caught the latest South Park code special. And, um, then I found this week, there is a trimmers podcast or a short run. Oh man! It's called Trimmers Making uh, Making Perfection. It's actually, I don't know, I don't know if they ever actually said. So the the format is kind of interesting. You could tell they kind of just threw it together. Uh, six episodes. Last one came out today, actually, or yesterday. But uh, Michael Gross, you know, Bert, he does an intro for every one of them. And you can tell he's just reading off something. Then some guy interviews somebody important to the film each week. Um, it was the two writers, um, the director Ron Underwood. Uh, Nancy, I can't remember her name, but basically the producer that made this whole thing happen. There was a fifth one I can't remember, and then the last one was Kevin Bacon. And then there's just like short outro. They're each only like 30 minutes. Um, it was pretty neat to listen to. Um, it was easy to binge. Um, most of the content was stuff I, you know, I'd learned, or most of the information stuff I'd learned in the all the research we did for the piece. But it was cool hearing all that again. Um, I did find a little short. I guess I guess you call it an horror it's an animated horror little like 23 minute video that i picked up off a, a, a blog i read that i'm going to send your way that you might find interesting it's called bobby yeah um and i don't even really know how to describe it i think you'll enjoy it it's it's like i said it's animated it's these little like fleshy weird creature things sort of a tr- very trippy kind of um plot if you want to call it a plot uh, pretty creepy uh i don't know i I don't know if there's much I can say about it, except for I'm going to send it your way and see what you think. What about you? Oh, yeah. You should share it in the show notes. I love yeah. seeing like kind of like indie animation projects like that because you always get so much original, weird kind of artwork and just design sensibilities that you wouldn't get if you're going through just like a big Disney-style animation house or something. So, oh, yeah, yeah, you should definitely share that with me and share that in the show notes. That sounds like uh, an awesome little find right there. Uh, I, man, I realized recently I had a huge hole in my, uh, my content consumption over the years that I'd never seen the Sopranos and I recently got, uh, HBO max. Mm. So I've been binging the Sopranos and, uh, it's just as good as advertised. I'm probably not, uh, breaking any news with that, but man, it is really awesome. And it kind of got me down like a organized crime kick. Like I've been listening to, some of the podcasts I listen to, they just have like interviews with organized crime uh, figures. Like I just listened to an interview with Sammy the Bull Gravano and everything. So it's pretty cool to uh, to have kind of like a new fascination in the realm of content. And um, my wife and I, uh, Melissa, we went back and rewatched pretty much the entire run of The Walking Dead. Yeah. And now we, we burned through all that. Like it took us maybe five weeks or something to watch all of it. So now we've gone on we started watching fear the walking dead, which I was always, I was always kind of like not really into I watched the first two seasons previously and I didn't really stick with me. But then I realized like, Oh, that show really picks up around season three. Yeah. And have you seen fear the walking dead? Have you watched it? Uh, Everything except for the latest season. So this is interesting because maybe you, uh, maybe you can back me up on this, but I've realized that, Walking Dead takes more 
it it's really more like a live action comic book like the way the the way the action is built and the storylines it follows the way the effects are done and yeah. fear the walking dead seems so much more grounded and it seems like their zombies in fear the walking dead they don't have as many like hero zombies where it's like this elaborate mm-hmm. set piece built around one zombie most of the zombies are kind of just like background horde kind of low level on the zombie effects but then where they really put their money it seems is in like some of the, they ha- seems like they'll have like a signature kill or something every couple of episodes and it's some of the goriest stuff I've ever seen some of those yeah. realistic like there was one scene where a guy had his leg burned and they were scraping off all this all this charred flesh and it was like it was stomach churning <laughs> i got a pretty strong stomach i'm usually sitting there eating like bagels and jelly or something and i was like oh, i gotta look away from this one man oh, yeah. and uh i really appreciate that because it's one of the things i love most about horror is like the artistry that goes into creating these like crazy blood of gore effects so i am totally sold on fear the walking dead now especially now that i got into season three like the storylines really picked up it's great so if you're a walking dead fan you should definitely slog through the first few seasons of that to get to the good stuff yeah, I agree. I think it was. Uh, I think I picked it up right when it started, and yeah, I do remember it being a little slow um, at first. But yeah, it definitely grew on me as well. Side note: I also have never seen uh, The Sopranos. Um, oh, dude, it's great. Yeah, that's what. Uh, I mean, obviously, that's what I hear. Uh, also, well, no, <laughs> I'd actually forgotten. So maybe it didn't leave as much of a impression on me. I had actually had never seen um, Breaking Bad until. Oh man! Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm gonna have to revoke that contentology degree we <laughs> illegally gave well, you. No, get this. Like you're really gonna want to take it now because uh, I just remembered Heather and I actually watched. Eventually, we we decided to watch it because we you know had to quote unquote, and uh, I think we made it two two and a half seasons and just stopped. Um, Ugh, Nick. I, I know. Breaking I know. my heart, buddy. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I think there were probably. I think there was probably some more context around there that you're not getting. Um, probably, and I'm not remembering. I feel like there was probably. So I remember watching. We were in the bus, living in the bus. So I don't know if like one of our segments, travel segments, was over, and we're like, uh, just kind of forgot about it, or we just got. I don't think we got bored of it, but maybe we just did. Maybe it just wasn't our cup of tea. But I don't know. Strange. You know what's even better is Better Call Saul. And it seems blasphemous to say that, but man, Better Call Saul, they, something about the cinematography and the lighting, and it's just such a beautiful show. Like, you know, you hear like every frame a painting. Mm-hmm. That is the, that's the very definition of how that show looks. It's, really? Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, like a, a lot of it, it's kind of like filmed in darkness and we, you know, they have used like rim lighting and like real sharp key lighting on the characters and so the uh it almost looks like in a lot of scenes it looks like it's a painting done on a black canvas it's really unique looking and uh it's it's definitely a worthy follow-up to breaking bad which means you'll probably hate it (laughs) i don't know i i I wouldn't have guessed cinematography would be a big component of um a show like that so that's interesting i'm gonna have to give that would you all right having not watched all of breaking bad is it something you could just pick up and watch solo or without you know having the full background no it's it's definitely a a direct uh well part of it is a follow-up and a part of it is a seek uh a prequel so Hmm. it kind of bookends breaking bad you really Uh, need to have the context of breaking bad to watch it i would say I mean, you can you could watch it and you would be a little bit confused about some who the characters are and there'd be some things they're talking about without context. Yeah. But if you're a cinematography file, maybe you go and just check it out anyways. Okay, okay. All right, well, let's take a quick break and then when we get back, we'll get into the content. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Nick, hope you're ready. I am ready and, well, I don't know, whatever words you would put after ready. Let's do this. Ready to go. All right. Now, it's, I know it's been a long time since we've talked about anything Marvel, but I think it's uh, well known that I am a huge fan of the series they produce and the movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, how about you, Marvel? 
How many thumbs up in your book for Marvel? I, uh, I am generally, I have enjoyed pretty much everything I've seen. There's probably been a couple that uh, didn't quite get there for me. I wouldn't say I'm a fanboy. I don't know a lot about the history of it. So I wasn't a comic book guy growing up. Um, so I didn't have a lot of that background. So yeah, short and sweet. I enjoy the movies, but I don't, um, I'm just not super into, uh, going beyond just watching it and enjoying it. Yeah. I was a, I definitely was a comic book guy growing up, but I was all into image comics, which is the same publisher that does the walking dead. I never Mm. read the walking dead growing up, but I wasn't like a Marvel fan growing up. I just really love what they've done with their interconnected universe and how they brought a lot of characters that were kind of considered to be dorky and kind of like C list characters like Iron Man, not an A list character before the MCU got a hold of him. Oh, really? But they basically turned him into like one of the most recognizable properties in the world. So they definitely have like a they definitely have like a golden touch in the MCU when it comes to creating content. At least that's the way I feel. And we've covered in depth uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier on this show. Brett's talked about that. And Brett and I both talked about Loki, which uh, we stated that it was one of our favorite Marvel properties. But recently, I realized that I've been overlooking what I would actually consider to be my favorite Marvel show of all time. And it's iconoclastic in the world of Marvel because it doesn't really follow a hero at all. In fact, this show kind of falls into a weird spot in both the canon of Marvel and the universe. So it's a Netflix series, which already places it into a gray zone in the MCU because I don't know if you follow the Netflix series much, but uh, they will maybe offer like cursory references to, you know, New York being destroyed several times, Uh but it's never really a part of any of those stories. And uh, so it's a Netflix series, which is already a little weird. Uh And it's a spinoff show that's based around a character that popped up in Daredevil as a narrative device and then became my favorite Marvel property to date. And I'm talking about Netflix's Marvel's The Punisher starring John Bernthal. Have you watched this? No, I have. That one has slipped by. Oh man. It's so amazing. Uh, Hopefully I can convince you to give it a shot. So I don't know if you're a, probably not much of a Punisher fan if you weren't a comic book guy, but I'll give you a quick synopsis of Punisher's story. So Punisher, Frank Castle, that's his name, he is a classic anti-hero character. So he's an ex-Force recon marine, at least in this telling, and he, and he lost his family in a tragic shooting. So he's a man that literally has nothing to live for and is thereby free to do anything he deems necessary to take down his enemies. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the Netflix version, the John Bernthal version, I mean, he's basically a tornado of destruction. He's tearing through New York City's criminal elements in a hail of gunfire and relentlessly murdering anyone he deems to be evil. And he's on this overarching mission to avenge his family's murders. And the Netflix series follows him on this path from Daredevil Season 2, where he pops up first as an enemy of Daredevil, and then he becomes a shaky companion as he realizes they're basically fighting on the same side, just using different methods. And uh, Matt Murdock, that's Daredevil, he's basically like Bat- like Batman. He's trying to disable his enemies but not kill them. And Frank Castle, the Punisher, is like a werewolf, basically just ripping everyone to shreds in an attempt to get whatever he's after. So these motivations start with him looking to take down the Irish mob in New York. And they eventually evolve to him looking to solve the murder of his family and nothing else really matters to him, but his mission. And that makes for some very compelling storytelling. And what I love about the way this show handles, uh, the origin, the origin story is that instead of committing an entire season to the origin, which I would have hated, Uh, This show, if you start with Punisher season one, it starts directly after the end of that story. And then the details of the origin are kind of filled in with context clues. Because I don't know about you, but I kind of hate it when uh, an entire film or especially an entire series is just the origin of the character. I think it's like we're kind of at a, a point with storytelling where... I feel like the the writers can be a little bit more creative than that. And it's really cool to see an origin story told almost entirely through, t- through context clues. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was, I would think yeah, if, if, if you're talented enough, you should be able to uh, give us that story without actually having to make us sit through it. Yeah. And that's exactly what this does. It was definitely like a breath of fresh air. 
But if anything, I think you could say that this entire first season is actually a villain origin story, which I think was also a really original take. But I'm not going to tell you who, what, really anything about that. <laughs> Consider that a deposit into the intrigue account for people <laughs> that uh, might want to go out and watch this series. And if you've watched any of these uh, Netflix series, you know the leniency on edgy shit is way higher in the Netflix shows than it is in the MCU. So the MCU walks a very tight line on edginess. It's always residing directly in the middle of the PG-13 road. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Netflix Marvel's uh, Marvel shows are much more brutal. They're more racy. They're more gritty, which is perfect for the Punisher. And... So, something that's weird, like as a Walking fan, a Walking Dead fan, you'll probably be able to commiserate with this as well. But, uh, like most American shows that are not fully committed to R-rated territory, there is nary an f-bomb to be heard anywhere in this show, which is just about the only immersion-breaking element in the in the entire thing. Mm. And I'm sure you've noticed this in the Walking Dead. I mean, they're like the number one offender of this, at least like the flagship show. That's uh. Anytime I hear somebody say, like, man, screw that, I'm just like, God, why? Why, did, why don't they just write around that kind of language instead of trying to, you know, patchwork in that, that type of insult? You know, instead of, instead of dropping an F-bomb, everybody's saying, screw that. And it's – anytime I hear that, it's just like a, it's like a red light going off in my head. You know, somehow uh, – I mean, it's obvious now that you mentioned that. Yeah, that's how it is. I guess it didn't trigger that same – same thing in me. I, I would say the remaining, I guess, six or eight shows left, I'll probably be noticing that all the way throughout. But hey, at least there's only six or eight shows left. That's right. So uh, I think this whole thing, like not dropping the F-bomb, it's kind of like uh, has something to do with like the puritanical values against sex in America and even words that are in an ancillary manner that might reference sex, mm -hmm. like the word fuck. And they are suspiciously absent from horrendously violent, otherwise amazing American programming. And uh, it's, I don't know, hopefully I can plant this as an earworm into everyone else's head so it bothers everyone else <laughs> just as much. Maybe uh, we can get some of our fans to write to their congressmen and we need more know, fucks. try to get more fucks into our American programming. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's a little bit of a sideline, but... One of the uh, interesting things about the Punisher show is that this is the first show released by Netflix that didn't tie into the Defenders storyline. So there's Jessica Jones, there's Iron Fist, there's Daredevil, and Luke Cage, and they're all directly linked to this, this failed Defenders spin-out. And I feel like Punisher avoided this strange entrapment, uh, mainly because he doesn't really fit with the type of story they were telling there, which is a definite plus for this show because that, that Defender tie-in didn't help any of those series. And this is also uh, the first Netflix series to not involve any supernatural elements. So there's no magic or powers. There's just guns, oh, determination, yeah. and a quote-unquote hero with an absolute disregard for his own safety and well-being, which I guess you, I guess that could be considered a superpower because it definitely allows Frank Castle to do some crazy stuff. And I love a, I love a superhero with no powers. I mean, like... I think Batman is kind of like a superhero that everyone holds up as being awesome because he's he's really like so relatable because you you just think like oh yeah if you had all this money mm -hmm. backing you you could probably in all this free time to commit to learning forty different martial arts styles you could potentially be a Batman you know and uh, Punisher is he's just like that he he has no superpowers in fact you know every villain in this series also falls into this category. There's no powers other than specialized skill or infrastructure backing someone's actions in this in this world. Those are real superpowers, like high levels of training and fighting and killing yeah. and money and resources, the ability to either deny your actions or completely cover them up. Those are the powers that the Punisher's, uh, Punisher's world is built around. And his particular superpower is his training, his relentlessness, like I said, his disregard for personal injury, mm -hmm and the mercilessness with which he dispatches his enemies, or the fact that he's casually competent in every situation, he's fearless, and he has absolutely no risk aversion when it comes to throwing himself into a hail of bullets, broken glass, or shrapnel. You know this? Uh, and, uh, this sounds like to me. That's uh, good stuff. Sounds like John Wick. 
Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, it's exactly like that's one of the coolest things about John Wick yeah. is just you just imagine like how hard it would be to fight when you have like big old piece of glass stuck in your <laughs> bicep or whatever, like the crazy stuff that happens at John Wick. And it's like it's so compelling to see or even like to read a story where a person is like fighting through debilitating injuries. That's a that's an yeah. awesome story element that I always appreciate. So uh, we need to kind of discuss, in my opinion, the best thing about this series, which is John Bernthal himself, or as I call him, the ultimate punisher. So I was first introduced to John Bernthal through The Walking Dead, where he played Shane. But he's also been in huge Hollywood blockbusters like Wolf of Wall Street and uh, Fury with Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. And he plays a perfect tortured badass or a badass asshole. And you can... You can feel in his characters that he grew up rough and tumble. You know, you can just feel that he's been like scrapping and street fighting his whole life. He's authentic. And in my, yeah, it's very authentic. You know, he looks like, if you've seen him, you know, his nose is like, it looks like it's been broken a bunch. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, in my research, I found that it's been broken like 14 or 15 times. <laughs> Jesus. And like all that authenticity, like when he brings it to the screen, I think he has like two characters he plays. The tortured badass or the badass asshole. And uh, I think he plays the tortured badass, which is what the Punisher character is much better. I think that's definitely like his, uh, that's his bread and butter. So despite growing up in a uh, somewhat privileged manner in DC, he apparently had his own share of real life run-ins with violence. So there's one story I found in 2009. He was walking his dog, Boss. What an American name <laughs> that is. And uh, some drunk guy tried to grab his dog, which, man, if you ever seen John Bernthal, you'd have to be fucking wasted to think that's a good idea. Right. But uh, so John Bernthal told him to back off. But uh, this guy and some of his buddies started following him home. Like, man, did you guys know this guy's going to be the Punisher? <laughs> so uh, John Bernthal punched him in the face, and the guy fell down, smacked his head on the pavement. And unfortunately, this wasn't his first run-in with this type of violence. You know, he's been brawling since he was a teen, but uh, the guy he knocked out was still unconscious an hour later, and the cops told him, if that guy doesn't wake up, you're going away for life. What? So luckily, I mean, like there was there was definitely a chance that he might have you know, put this guy in a coma or killed him, wow. and luckily that, that didn't happen. This guy recovered, and John Bernthal went on to play some of my favorite characters of the last several years. So I do appreciate <laughs> that random idiot's uh, ability to cling to life because Indeed. he may have robbed us of one of the greatest American actors of all time, in my opinion. And I also found this other story. Uh, this is a lighter note, but there was also that one time that he threatened to beat up Oliver Stone on the set of the, the film World Trade. <laughs> so Oliver Stone was taking a very aggressive approach with directing him, telling him he was vain and the worst actor on set. And this was... Uh, 2006 and it seemed like he was kind of in a uh, not taking shit from anybody stage of his life so in his own words he said let me tell you something dude you might be Oliver Stone but I'll beat your fucking ass right here on the set in front of everybody I'll beat your ass you got that <laughs> and that does sound exactly like something the Punisher would say so uh, it was apparently uh, later revealed that Oliver Stone was just trying to piss him off and uh, it was uh, I guess in a an attempt to get a more intense performance out of John Bernthal. Uh -huh. And it seems like he got it. He almost got killed by the Punisher. That's uh, that's pretty wild. Do you, uh, do you, do you <laughs> see any information about wh whether they, uh, like, did John, I mean, at the time, it, he obviously didn't seem to be realizing that's what Oliver was doing. Did they did they discuss it after the fact? And do you see anything about that? How, the, how they, did they, get the relationship back on a uh, good standing or well, I don't know how their relationship is, but uh, I think it was revealed to him later that Oliver Stone was doing that just to try to pull some kind of performance out of him, which is kind of weird. If you've seen that movie, you know, John Pernthal is not in that movie for very long. So <laughs> I, I don't know. May have all may have all ended up on the cutting room floor. It's also a really awesome movie. And uh, that movie kind of feeds into one of my worst fears of being trapped in enclosed spaces. Mm -hmm. So he's like a him and a few other guys, Nick Cage, they're all like uh, Port Authority cops and they all get trapped under the World Trade Center as it collapses. I mean, it is a horrifying visage of a film. Yeah. And uh, 
yeah, it just when I read that about about Oliver Stone doing that, it I was just kind of blown away because I didn't see any of that really come through in his performance. It, it must have all been cut. But that's also a good movie if you're into crazy movies about being trapped in rubble. Yeah, my favorite. No, the best. All right, so in my mind, John Bernthal is the Punisher. Mm-hmm. The Punisher is John Bernthal, which is quite a feat because up until now when I thought about the Punisher, I always thought about Thomas Jane. Did you watch the Thomas Jane Punisher film back in the day? I, I feel like I have, but I don't I don't have a good memory. So I, uh, I was going to say I didn't. Not super memorable. I mean, okay. I, I grew up with the 2004 Punisher, uh, Thomas Jane, John Travolta. Admittedly, it's not a great film at all. But when I thought about Cinematic Punisher, I always thought about that movie. And that may be the greatest gift of this show. It overwrote that movie in my mind with a much better version of the character. So once again, Marvel, you've done it. you made my life better. So John Bernthal said he's not, even though he uh, he's not necessarily a Marvel or a comic fan, he had this quote. He said that, I think that this character has existed for a long time, not only in this character that has resonated with the comic book audience, but with the military community and the law enforcement community. And that's something I find sacred. It's been a huge honor to play him. I know that this story will continue and should continue in some way. And whether we're a part of that, it's been an honor so far. So it sounds like this is like a character playing the Punisher really connected with him. And uh, when you watch the show, I mean, he seems like he's barely acting. So (laughs) it's like the perfect fit. That's awesome. I, uh, as you've been talking about this, I've just realized I too have a big contentology hole in my life and it's been action flicks, uh, action, really thing, any super action. I haven't, I don't think I've watched anything new in a while. So this, uh, you are intriguing my action brain cells as we speak. That's weird. Cause you're like a Keanu fan and he does, I'd say like 70% action. Well, yeah, yeah, but uh, as of recent, it's just uh, oh yeah, it's just uh, it's just been more chill kind of stuff, and uh, you know, every now and then you you need some some serious action. Well, that's kind of one of the the things I like about this show too is that everybody, all the contentologists on here, have their own kind of content avenues. You know, I'm into, I'm not really into content that expands my outlook on the li- on life you might say <laughs> i'm into action i'm into uh i'm into video games and i'm into assassination books and military things it's just those are things that i sound, that i find fascinating and there's so much good content to be mined and everything you've brought including tremors highly cerebral conversations i can barely even keep up with <laughs> and brett is kind of a you know he he reads and watches a lot of like life affirming and mind improvement style content. Yeah. And it's just interesting because through both of you guys, I've been introduced to a lot of stuff that I probably wouldn't have gone out and searched out on my own. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the same right back at both of you guys, uh, it does uh, definitely, uh, influence my content circuit since, uh, this, what is a little over a year now of this? It's, uh, it's been, uh, actually I think we're like coming up on just about two years. For the wow. show now. That's impressive. Hey, let's just pause for a second and say uh, kudos to you guys on this uh, amazing journey and, and continued journey. Oh, awesome. thanks, man. Yeah, man. Doing this show, one of one of my favorite things is just uh, how it's made me look at all this content that I've been consuming my whole life. And now having you guys bring all this stuff into my lives too. Yeah, it's I awesome. love it. It's great. <laughs> so... We can't really talk about the Punisher without discussing the Punisher skull, his iconic logo. So if you've seen anything with the Punisher or, I mean, you've probably seen this emblazoned on trucks and military uniforms. Everything my brother wears or drives has, um, has a Punisher skull on it. Yes. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's very, uh, iconic. It's kind of like an evil looking skull, angry eyes. It's got the big, long teeth, pronounced cheekbones. It's the Punisher skull. Yep. And in the comics, it's, it's emblazoned across his chest and all of its excellently, excellently designed and illustrated glory. But, uh, the Netflix show with almost like with everything it does, it takes a more realistic approach. In fact, 
this icon, this logo doesn't really even show up until almost the end of the first season, other than small glimpses right at the beginning. And nary a word of the skull is present until the final mission begins. And when it does show up, it's this crude spray paint version. It's like what you'd expect to see in a realistic, gritty world where not everyone has access to sublimation machines that can print perfectly designed logos all over all over everything. But the skull does have a uh, long and controversial history. So the Punisher and the Skull debuted in 1974 in a Spider-Man comic. And uh, Punisher was created by Jerry Conway. And the character has gone through several evolutions. He was a larger-than-life crime fighter. He was a disturbed veteran, a straight-up crazy person. But his central character elements of him using murder, torture, and coercion to solve all of life's problems have remained constant. And like many well-designed logos... uh, People latched onto the Punisher skull pretty heavily, like like your brother. Yeah. And uh, at this point, it's been co-opted by elite military units, police departments, and recently, and unfortunately, uh, various right-wing figures and QAnon supporters. Oh, yeah. And uh, it just goes to show that there's nothing on this planet that can't be made worse by attaching a political movement to it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so in uh, Jerry Conway's own words, this is from a Forbes article I found, Uh, The Punisher is representative of a failure of law and order to address the concerns of people who feel abandoned by the legal system. It always struck me as stupid and ironic that members of the police are embracing what is fundamentally an outlaw symbol. And that is a very astute observation. Yeah. It is very weird. And I think, you know, when you see this on a police car, it's, it's definitely missing the entire point. Uh, you don't want your police acting like the Punisher. And in fact, you don't want the police being the punishers of anything. You know, that's in the world we live in. That's kind of a, uh, a matter for the courts is what punishment ha- <laughs> is. What kind of punishment is doled out? The police are supposed to be there to protect, serve. And uh, in the case of like criminals, take them and put them in front of the proper authority. So yeah, I think he's right, right. about that. Yeah. I, um, I would say, uh, just to bring it back to the top a little bit, that's there's a problem with semantics and, and, and a, a slogan, in this case, is that logo being morphed into something that originally wasn't. I may give them just a little benefit of the doubt. I bet a lot of them are just using it because it's like a, it's a symbol of badass, and maybe they don't know the hell they may even know what the story of Punisher is. Um, so maybe it's just the slogan that's been co-opted. The slogan as a logo is to mean badass. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they don't know better. Um, probably some of them are like, yeah, I am the Punisher. And there's, you know, what's it? Bad apples. You got some bad apples out there. So. Indeed. So, I mean, this kind of brings it back to the top also. Like in re- in response to what's happening with the Punisher logo, uh, Conway launched a program called Skulls for Justice, which uses artwork crowdsourced from people of color and incorporates them into Black Lives Matters t-shirt designs. And when I read that, honestly, I was like, this also sounds a little tone deaf to me. Mm-hmm. A skull that represents operating above and outside the law to achieve your goals by means of murder, torture, and <laughs> coercion doesn't seem like the best choice for a movement supposedly wanting to affect social change through peaceful means either. I feel like this is not the kind of logo you should really be attaching to any movement that operates within the realm of polite society. I, I would concur. Yeah. Uh, as long as, uh, yeah, if you know what it's really about, then yes, exactly. Yeah, I thought that was a really strange choice. Um, like, to me, the skulls used by elite military teams like the SEALs or something seems to be the perfect application because hunting terrorists and bad guys and bringing the fight to their front door in the dead of night is literally their job. Right. But, uh, you know, Conway was bothered by its use by the military and by things like it appearing on the uniforms of soldiers in American Sniper where – it's featured prominently if you've seen that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's bizarre to see this controversy associated with it o- over the years. But I guess it's kind of a product of creating a character that people love. I mean, people love action and badasses. And, you know, they love to kind of fantasize about what you could do if you operated outside the law. And also coupling that with a very well-designed logo. Right. I mean – even if you had no political or even real world 
association with the meaning of the logo, it's still an awesome thing that yeah, you'd want to have on a shirt. I have Punisher socks. It just looks I hide cool. it in my shoes, but I got it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but none of that has affected my love for this show. I just see love seeing John Bernthal rip through the criminal underworld. Love seeing him rip them a new coercion hole in classic <laughs> Punisher fashion. And uh, I always think about when I'm watching a show, I think about it's like reading a novel. That's the same pace I want a series to move. You know, like one season per novel. And when watching this series, or any series really, I'm always on the lookout for alternate storylines and extraneous dialogue used to pad out the 12 to 16 hours of running time of a normal series. And uh, with this, I'm specifically looking at something like The Walking Dead. You know, that yeah. is an extremely padded out show. Yeah. And that won't necessarily stop me from watching a series as much it would as it would stop me from finishing a series of books. You know, if a, if a series of books is just like rambling and all over the place and extra storylines, that can kind of turn me off. But it does glare at me. And this show has none of that. It moves so efficiently and every moment that happens is interesting. And I love the idea of these smaller personalized stories happening at the same time as the universe shattering events of the MCU. Even if, you know, the Netflix properties are questionable when it comes to how they fit into the movie's timelines. But it's cool to think about like when you're watching the Avengers and you see New York being destroyed, to also have like the context and they're like, oh, the Punisher is also there. And Daredevil is there, and all your favorite characters from the TV shows are also there at the same time that this, this stuff is happening. Yeah. That's cool. I, that That's the power of the interconnected universe. Yeah, I would say... Uh, one of the things... I, I love uh, stories or disparate pieces of content that can be interconnected, and I'm, it does surprise me a little bit that um, that hasn't drawn me more into the Marvel world. Because, um, it's. I mean, it opens up so much... Uh, possibility to to dig deeper and to think deeper into things and i don't i don't, I was not sure why it never did it to me i mean like i said i, I watch most of the marvel stuff i haven't seen many of the netflix um series but yeah, i don't know maybe it's just a, a lack of time and it's, it seems overwhelming or something like that well if you're going to watch one of the netflix series this would be the one there's been talk about bringing Punisher into the MCU proper, but uh, John Bernthal has gone on the record saying that he loves this character, but he's only interested in reprising the role if all of the associated darkness is included. Mm. Like he wouldn't be interested in doing it the Disney way. Oh yeah, and I agree. The Punisher needs to be brutal. It needs to be gory and merciless, and it needs to kind of needs to glorify the kind of carnage that Frank Castle brings down on the criminal underworld. And it may sound like I'm glorifying this type of behavior and the actions of the Punisher, you know, a man that kills his way into and out of any problem. And I am in media. It makes for some great content. And that's what I love about content. It allows us to explore these types of insane ideas from a safe distance. And I also love fight choreography. I love the violence and brutality of the show. And that violence and grittiness has been a bit of a hang up for bringing things like Punisher and Deadpool under the Disney Marvel umbrella. Mm. So it was just announced that uh, Charlie Cox will be reprising his role as Daredevil from the Netflix show uh, in a proper MCU film. And maybe that's a sign that we'll be seeing more of John Bernthal's Punisher in the future. So in closing, Disney, Marvel, come on guys, let's do this thing. Let's bring these adult properties into the cinematic realm and share John Bernthal's Punisher with Marvel fans everywhere that want a, a little bit more teeth from the MCU. Yeah, here, here, I second that. I mean, come on, Disney, this is it's not the same world you you started in back in the, gosh, I don't know, fifties, forties. I don't know when the movie started. <laughs> Seems like it. So yeah, I mean the uh, the the content consumers have definitely evolved. And I think like the world has kind of grown up with Marvel, which, right. you know, now that they're under Disney, it's going to be hard for stuff like this to happen. But this is, I mean, like they've, uh, they have announced a blade movie in the MCU and blade also has to be super violent. I mean, it's about, if you saw like the Wesley Snipes films, oh, I mean, I love it's, those. That movie starts with a shower of blood, which is definitely not like a an MCU style visual, right? But maybe they're maybe they're going to open it up a little bit. Yeah, that'd be cool. I, I would be behind that. And just as a 
you know, so we don't have all the fact checkers jumping in on us and sending us all these nasty emails. Uh, apparently, uh, October 16th, 1923 is when Walt Disney's brother got things kicked off. Oh. Oh, wow. wow that's Almost a, 100 years. That's quick Google, man, right there in the <laughs> middle of the show. Or did you just pull that out of that big brain of yours, Nick? Check out the big brain on Brad. Exactly. <laughs> well, if you're a Marvel fan, check out Punisher. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the show. We love you guys. Uh, if you want to send us some nasty fact-checking emails, you can do that at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. Uh, otherwise, stay tuned right here. We're going to be bringing more content jammed directly into your ear holes in the near future. <laughs>